We are approaching a scripture tonight that is very difficult. And uh, anyone who tells you different is either lying to you or is really, really overestimating their ability. Um, If there is one book of the Bible that has brought more discussion, we'll put it nicely, discussion, over how to interpret it is revelation. If you get a if you get a room full, uh, you get five theologians in a room, and you say, "How do you interpret Revelation?" You'll get at least six different answers. This is not an easy book to interpret. But then add on top of that all of the other things that go along with it, especially the topic of the millennium, and then you get into some real interesting discussions. I saw a discussion. I did not have the time to watch it. Um, but I'll probably be watching it in coming days. Uh, it was it was a discussion of three or four guys and on the millennium, and it took them two hours to do. And they are just making the points and briefly refuting each other. I, I this these last few weeks, I've been reading up on this and reading the opinions of different scholars and 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 theologians of the past and the present and trying to figure out what do the different views of this, what do they say, what do they mean, you know, how do they interpret all this? And to be quite honest with you, it's overwhelming. Um, So I'm going to not really dig into the theories and the discussions. I'm going to take an approach that is directly biblical. We're going to look at the text. Um, You can interpret it in a lot of different ways. Well, we're going to look at the text because there are some things that the text says that whether you're not a millennialist at all, whether you're amillennial, which means there's no literal millennium, or whether you're post-millennial, that we're living in the millennium right now and one day we're going to get the world perfect enough that it's going to spark Jesus coming back, or whether you're pre-millennial saying, just hurry up Jesus and come get me because I'm tired of all this mess. Whatever you fly in the spectrum, I think we can all agree at what we're going to talk about tonight. Because what we're talking about tonight is biblical. Okay? So let's let's put the arguments to the side for a minute and let's focus on the text. Revelation chapter 20. I want to read with you the first 10 verses. And the reason I want to do the first 10, even though we're only going to talk about the first six, is because I want you to see what happens immediately after verse 6. So I want you to get kind of the full picture, but I don't think we're going to have time to go past verse 6. So we're going we're gonna to keep it to the first six verses, so we're not here till 8 o'clock. But we are going to read the first 10 verses, so we get a little bit of a bigger picture. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Father, give us wisdom as we approach this, your holy word. May we not be presumptuous enough to assume that we know everything. May we be humble and seek to understand rather than to stand over your word. Teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think it's important um, in that prayer I just said, uh, help us to understand so we don't stand over. Because one of the things that tends to happen is we come in a passage like this, and this is why it's so hard. We come in a passage like this and we have preconceived ideas. We have our pre-understandings. We have the way that we view, the way that we view how we read Scripture, things that we would never say outright, but that shape our thinking, that shape the way we understand. And then when we come to a text like this, we see exactly what we're looking for, right? Uh, someone has said that if you if you read the same verse over and over and over again, uh, eventually it gets to the point where uh, you're no longer reading the verse, you're reading your thoughts about the verse. Because when you see it and you look at it, you're, you're bringing in all of the ideas that you've always held or all of the ideas that you currently hold. And so you can only see what you already believe. You don't, it's a bias against new information. So, Put the pre-understanding aside, okay? I don't, I don't know what camp you're in. I know what camp I'm in, and I'm barely in that camp because I'm still not convinced they get it all right. So um, it doesn't really matter. I know that I'm, I know that I'm going to be one of the ones that's on Jesus' side when all this is going down. So I'm good. Uh, you know, however He wants to do it, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, well, part of the problem is that this book is so elusive. It's not one genre of literature. It's three different genres at the same time. You get the epistle, the common everyday letter, Paul writing to the Ephesian church, or Peter writing his two letters, or John writing to, to a couple of individuals in 2 John and 3 John. You, you get these letters that are written. They're everyday, normal correspondence, everyday course of life. And so they're very particular. They're very, they're very down to earth. There's not any highfalutin language in them. It, it's all direct to your scenario. This is an epistle. Now, it may not sound like it for much of it, but remember how it began? Remember, it was John beginning with the salutation, and he, he writes these seven letters to these seven churches, but he never really ends the letters. You see, all of this is one big letter. And at the end, you're going to see a postscript. You're going you're to see the, the concluding remarks in the postscript of a letter, too. So all of this is a letter, but it's not just a letter, it's a prophecy. It's a prophetic word. God revealing to John what needs to be written down and he writes it. And prophecy sometimes is poetic. Sometimes it's prose, it's beautiful language. Sometimes it's stark visions, but it's always what God has revealed. 
And then you have the apocalyptic literature, the stuff that just seems so odd to us, but John's audience knew it well. They had been writing it for hundreds of years by the time John writes Revelation. The fantastic visions, the symbolism, the richness of the imagery, the scariness of the imagery. A beast with seven heads and ten horns? I don't want to run into that on the street, do you? But it's these kinds of images that show us what John is trying to describe. You see, all of this throughout this whole book, time after time after again, more than 100 times in the book of Revelation, John says, and I saw, or then I saw. Same, same words in the Greek. That Greek phrase over 100 times, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, all throughout the book. These are visions that John is writing down. And if we take them too literally, we'll miss the point. But if we take them too symbolically, we'll miss the point too. We've got to find the right balance. And Revelation 20 is one of those passages that's really hard. Let's dig into it. At the beginning, these first three verses, we really see Christ the conqueror. Christ really stands out as conqueror in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. Then I saw, there's that phrase, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now, we don't know. This could be an angel, or it could be the angel. You know, the angel of the Lord that appears before Joshua when he's ready to go take over Jericho and says, all right, I've got your battle plan for you. He could be the angel of the Lord that was leading the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness, day and night, night and day, pillar of cloud and fire. Could be that angel of the Lord. It could just be some random angel that God says, you, <laughs> go do this. An angel that we've never seen before and never will see again. We don't know. doesn't matter. This angel is holding the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. Now, what's he going to do with a key to a bottomless pit, an abyss, if you will, and a great chain? What's he going to do? Well, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, verse 3, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Regardless of what your view is on the millennium, whether you believe it's going to happen on the earth after Christ's physical return to earth, or whether you believe it's already happening in the church age, or whether you believe there ain't really a millennium after all, it does not matter. What we do know for sure is that God, through Christ, will exercise His dominion over Satan. And what this, what this imagery is showing us, what this vision is showing us, is that God will conquer his adversary. Doesn't matter exactly how you think that's going to go down. What matters is it will go down. Now, this is a defeat of Satan in two acts. Verses 1 through 3 show us the first act. Verses 4 through 6 give us an interlude. And then verses 7 through 10 give us the second act. Then followed by a more general judgment and on from there. But this first act, these first three verses we see Christ, the conqueror. And, and notice, he's, he's using this angel to do it, whether if the angel isn't Christ himself, if it's not the angel of the Lord, if it's just a random angel, um, he's using this angel. But if it's him, then it's him directly. But look at what the angel does. First, 
Verse 2, and he seized the dragon. The first thing he does is he seizes the dragon. So Satan, this, this dragon, this ancient serpent, uh, by the way, ancient serpent, what, what serpent is that referring to? Yeah, that serpent that was in the garden that Adam should have just crushed and had made him into a gumbo or something. Yeah, that serpent, who is the devil. Devil is a Greek word that basically means adversary. It's the one against, the one put against. Satan, Satanos, accuser, he's the one that's bringing, that comes before God in the book of Job and says, and God says, what do you think of Job? And he says, well, Job, of course he praises you. You're giving him everything, right? He, bring, he seeks to bring accusation. And so the first thing we see is that he seizes Satan. He captures Satan. This, this idea of seizing, it's the idea of holding power or restraint over someone. It, it's, in fact, it's the word that's the second half of our word democracy. That, that, that people power. The power in democracy is with the people, right? Well, well, that crusty part, that, that's where, that's the Greek word that, that comes from. That's the power. That's the, the holding that he does of Satan, the binding, if you will. Well, well, I guess the binding is the second thing, isn't it? Uh, verse two, he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So now not only has he seized Satan, now he shackles Satan. That's what he's got the great chain for, right? So here we go. He gets, he gets Satan, seizes him, gets control of him, and binds him up. You, you get the image here that Satan is before this time running around loose all over the place. It's like a, a pet gerbil that gets out and you're chasing him all over the house trying to capture him and get him back in his cage. Some of y'all don't have gerbils. Okay, well, insert your pet here. You know, what? Anybody have a pet spider or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. You don't want those kinds of things to get out. You know, the tarantula gets out of its... Yeah, no, that wouldn't be good. We get the image of Satan just running rampant before this, but not anymore. No, now he is seized and he is shackled. He ain't going anywhere. Then, beginning of verse 3, and threw him into the pit. That's like a sentencing, isn't it? So now he's been seized, he's been shackled, he's been, he's been captured and handcuffed by the police, he's taken and he's, he's judged and thrown in prison for his crimes. The idea of this is not simply that God's just going to kind of hold him back. The idea is Satan ain't going anywhere. He is completely captured. He is completely bound. He is completely imprisoned in this pit. Okay? You follow me here? We got it? Okay. Verse The, the next thing in verse 3. Threw him into the pit and shut it. So now he's... Now he shuts in Satan. So we've got him seized. We got him shackled. We got him sentenced. Now we got him shut in. I, I was going to put shut up, but um, decided against that. He's locked into this pit. And then, keep reading, and sealed it over him. So now he's sealed up. Got that? He's seized. He's shackled. He's sentenced. He's shut in. He's sealed up. He ain't going nowhere. Do you see the picture in these first three verses? This is a dominion of Christ. He's binding Satan's power for this thousand-year period. Whether you think it's a literal thousand years or it's just a really long period of time, it doesn't matter. He's still got control. 
In fact, he never really gave up control of Satan. Think back to the book of Job. What do we see Satan doing? Is God coming to Satan or is Satan coming to God? And, and when Satan comes to God, how is he coming? Is he coming bragging about his exploits? How does he come to God? Look with me in Job chapter 1. I, this, is, this is important enough. Let's actually read it for ourselves. Let's not just take that, that preacher guy that, all, that makes lots of mistakes like printing bulletins uh, backwards and stuff. Yeah, so the inside of the bulletin, it printed the wrong way, and so you have to flip it to, to read it. That's what I was referring to. Um, Job chapter 1. Here we go. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God is, is a, a certain sort of biblical speech. Um, it's, it's the lower quality of celestial beings. There's God who's a completely different quality altogether. And then there are the quote-unquote sons of God, which are kind of like God, but not really. These will be like angels and demons and things of that sort. Well, here he comes, Satan. Wait, read that again. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. Do you see that? That's not Satan being in authority. And that is not a shared authority either. This isn't two kings meeting up to sign a treaty with each other. This is Satan reporting for duty in the palace, in the throne room of God himself. Now that's going to completely... That, that's, that's something that, that I've misunderstood for a long time. I used to think Satan was this bad guy that had absolutely nothing to do with God. Like, like he was some sort of alter ego of God or some sort of arch nemesis of God and they're constantly vying for power that's not the dynamic of scripture the dynamic of scripture is that Satan is always subservient to God now let's get that right because if Satan is subservient to God he's not all powerful he's not all knowing he doesn't do everything bad that happens to you some of it well let's face it we do to ourselves and some of it, it's other people being, well, people that do it to us. We give Satan a lot more credit than he deserves. The fact is, here we're seeing the dominion of Christ over Satan. Satan is under his control. Whether, whatever you see in these verses, I want you to see that. That God is the one in charge. Why does he do this? Why does he take Satan and bind him up and throw him into a pit? and lock it, seal it up, and do all of this effort to put Satan away. Why go through all that trouble? Well, that answers in verse 32. He threw him into a pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. You know, it's interesting. We think that, we think that like, like Satan's winning right now. Can you believe that? We think that he's actually winning. It takes a, a special kind of stupid to think that a loser is winning. And I've got to be honest with you. I think, I think he's got a... Satan must have a really good PR campaign. That's probably the best, the best part of hell is the PR campaign that Satan has running for him. Because the fact of the matter is he's not winning. In no, in no way, shape, form, or fashion is he winning. Oh, it looks like he's winning because oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, people will say. And, well... Yeah, it sure looks that way, doesn't it? But do you think God isn't in control of all this? 
You think he's not sovereign? You think that he's not the one that's ensuring that every aspect of his perfect will is being done? I mean, this is the guy that takes a Pharaoh completely against him and uses him as part of his plan. He says, you, you're, you know what? You're going to harden your heart. Let me, here, let me help you harden your heart. <laughs> let me harden your heart for you. Let me, let me put you in a position where you will go against the advice of your most trusted advisors. The cabinet in Pharaoh's court is all telling them, stop, we've got to get rid of these people. We're going to all die if you don't. And Pharaoh is just as thick-headed as they come. No, I'm not letting them go. Do you think that God might have had a hand in that? Oh, I do. I believe his hands are all over that. But, but Pharaoh, he's being mean. He's enslaving a people and he's making the work harder and harder and harder. It sure looked like Satan was winning, didn't it? But all the while, we know God's in control. We get, we get the advantage in that story. We get to read it. We've heard it in Sunday school for years and years. The story hasn't changed. Then again, when we see it playing out in our world, we think, well, now this has gotten really bad. Satan really is winning. In truth, Satan is impotent when it comes to fighting God's will. He's completely incompetent. I say all that because sometimes the error that we run into is that we overestimate our enemy and underestimate the God who lives in us. We think that because things are so bad and they're only getting worse, it doesn't matter how hard we fight, we're just not going to win. At least not until Jesus shows up and finally makes everything. Church, I, I got a question for you. When is the victory won? I don't think the victory's won when Christ returns. I think the victory was won, oh, about 2,000 years ago. Fact. You really want to get down to it. The victory was won long before history even began. It's never been out of his hands. No matter what you see going on in a world around you where people will praise evil and chastise good, where people will say it's not safe for you to sing in a church, but it is safe for you to yell at other folks and try to hit them with Molotov cocktails because you are standing up for the right reason. It doesn't matter. It's still in his hands. God is still on his throne and still in control. And the more that we think that Satan has already won, the more that we think that he has the power and the control, the more we fail to see the one who really does. I didn't mean to pause this long on this point, but I think it's an important point to make. And it doesn't even matter whether you read this literally or figuratively, whether you see all this as a, as a vision of what's happening spiritually or whether you see it as, as, as almost John previewing the video of actual events. doesn't matter because in either case, God's still in control and Satan is still incompetent and he will be defeated. Now, once we got him in the pit, we got him sealed up for a thousand years. What happens then? Well, then we see Christ the King. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge had been given. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Not only do we have Christ reigning, we have him co-reigning. You see, he's got, well, he's got officials and governors 
He's going to set up a government. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, Isaiah tells us. So sure enough, here's his government. So who is in this government? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look back at verse 4. Who's on the thrones? He sees these thrones. That's a picture. Even if it's not a literal throne, it is a picture of literal authority. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So we have the ones that are authorized to judge. Now, who it is remains a mystery, but that doesn't matter. What matters is they have been given, catch that that, that, uh, that passive voice. They do not take. They did not already have. They were given the authority to judge. I have to admit something. As of yet, I have not been given the authority to judge. Sometimes I do anyway. Don't we all? I don't have that authority right now. If he wants to give it to me later, that's his prerogative. I guarantee you when I get it, if I get it, I will be much in a much better position to judge than I am now. But he gives them the authority to judge. There's another group that he identifies. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Now, this is not just the ones who are beheaded. These are the ones who are martyred. That, that, that beheading is, it's a, it's one of a class. It's not just, you know, only the ones beheaded. So if you were burned at the stake, you're, you're, you don't qualify. It's all, no, it's not just the ones who've had their heads chopped off. It's all the ones who have been killed. Killed for what? For Jesus. For their testimony of Him. For God's Word. They were mistreated by the world, but now they're honored by Christ. Who else? It may be the same group, it may be a different group. But he continues, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. That is not if you receive the mark, but don't worship the beast, you're all right. If you worship the beast, but don't receive the mark, you're all right. It ain't going to happen that way. It's a both or neither. You're not going to receive a mark and not worship. You're not going to worship and not receive a mark. They go hand in hand. But these don't do either. They stand in defiance of the government order because by then it will be a government order to bow down and worship. The one who seems to have the power will make you bow or will destroy you. I don't know when that's going to happen. That could be millions of years from now. That could be hundreds of minutes from now. I don't know. But I do know this. The ones who defy that order in order to follow God... They reign with Christ. They're unwilling to submit to the demands of the beast. And so these faithful in Christ, well, what happened? Keep reading. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There are different interpretations here, but they don't matter. I'm just going to be completely honest with you. What matters is Christ is honoring the ones who are dishonored by the world because they are faithful to him. As for the rest of the dead, verse 5, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And about that first resurrection, God tells us, you can almost hear him smiling when he writes this, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Blessed because over such the second death has no power. That's the same blessed as blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who have a part in the first resurrection. 
because the second death has no power over them. One verse of scripture says it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. These get a good judgment. Not because they deserved it. They didn't. The Christ they trusted deserved it. Blessed and holy, he says. Holy. Holy enough. Look at the end of the verse. But they will become priests. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I made a lot of the point that God is in control and not Satan. And when he takes control, he is going to do what we cannot do. He's going to have a government that actually works. I don't know the nature of it, literal or not. I have my ideas. It doesn't matter. But I do know this. The same God that is in control in Revelation 20 is in control in 2020. I don't quite see what he's doing yet, but I know he's in charge. And I know he can be trusted. Father, help us trust you. Because... Well, to put it bluntly, we in a mess, and we need you. We need you from the moment we take our first breath. We need you all the way into our dying breath. Father, we need you to be good citizens. We need you to be good husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, daughters and sons, grandparents, grandchildren. We need you to live life the way that you designed us to live. And Father, we need you to be the God in control. Thank you for being in control. Help us put our trust in you. Not only just to trust Jesus for our salvation, but to trust you to help us make good decisions. To trust you when things are tough, when things are easy. To trust you to resist temptation. To trust you to give us the courage to speak out. Father, we're yours. We surrender control to you. Use us as you see fit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.